The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial conflict. The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material going back to 2008, subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. You'll receive your login immediately. And tonight we discuss Earth changes, government secrecy, the UFO and ET cover-up, from the perspective of a CIA whistleblower, with our special guest, Linda Moulton Howe, right now on Veritas. Linda Moulton Howe is a graduate of Stanford University with a master's degree in communication. She has devoted her documentary film, television, radio, writing, and reporting career to productions concerning science, medicine, and the environment. Linda has received local, national, and international awards, including three regional Emmys, a national Emmy nomination, and a station Peabody Award for medical programming. In addition to television, Linda produces reports and edits the award-winning Science, Environment, and Earth Mysteries news website, earthfiles.com, which is also linked at our website. And directly from the land of enchantment, New Mexico, I would like to welcome the one and only Linda Moulton Howe back to Veritas. Hello, Linda. Welcome back. Thank you, Mel, very much. We have had a week of uh, what seemed like hurricane winds here while the rest of the country was suffering a variety of uh, different weather. But I can say that this is a land of enchantment when the wind is not blowing. Absolutely. And, you know, I live in Arizona, very similar to New Mexico. And the other day I woke up in the morning, went outside, and the winds were just incredible. And I thought... What a day for catching fire. And one of my businesses caught fire that day. So that wind is really bad. This weather, oh my. this weather we're seeing, is this natural? No, this is definitely a change. And it is so intriguing to me that I go all the way back to the first interviews that I was doing about computer modeling with a Professor McElroy at Harvard University. The timeline was around 1970, probably 76. They were just beginning really trying to get a handle on what scientists that many years ago were warning that they were already beginning to see that there were incremental rises in CO2. Everyone knew that we have vast amounts of methane tied up in the tundra up north. And scientists were trying to see, are we really on the verge of taking the Industrial Revolution and inserting it into the big Earth climate system without realizing what the consequences might be? And from those early day interviews in which Professor McElroy at Harvard told me that his educated prediction for what the world would be like in 30 years from then, which would be coming up uh, into this era, that there would be increased intensity in storms. There would be more water on the East Coast 
fires and drought on the West Coast, that there might even be a problem with the Midwest of the United States with increasing physical energy in storms and tornadoes, and that eventually the so-called breadbasket would have to move further north, and that in fact, in the 21st century, where food might be threatened in some parts of the world completely, while others would have lots of water and growth, that we might even be in a position where Canada and the United States would have to come to some sort of international treaty where the food for the United States, such as wheat and some of the grains, might have to be uh, shared that responsibility in Canada because even that long ago, the computers were suggesting that there would be such drastic changes in the growth cycles of plants. Now, this is 2014. I lived through all those interviews. I have been called every name in the book, in radio, in television, trying to just simply report science facts over the years as climate change has occurred, people can argue all day long if they want to about what the source of the climate change is. It is indisputable that the climate of the planet is changing and that there is more energy, that there is more water being held in warmer air. And what we just saw yesterday in Pensacola, Florida, where you have 24 inches of rain come down in a short period of time, and the only consequence of something like that is going to be floods. All of this has been discussed by scientists. You will increasingly hear more discussions. And now I will jump to the, we'll call it the educated skeptic side. They will say, when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, there was a 1,000 parts per million CO2. So what is the big deal if we're at 400? Here is the bottom line answer for everyone, I hope, listening to take in to heart and think about what has been happening. The 400 parts per million that we are almost about to reach has occurred in a huge, dramatic rise in a century. When you go back through the ice cores and the various other cores that scientists study about the changes in Earth's climate which have happened since the beginning of this planet four and a half billion years ago, uh, that what you see in, in all of the research that goes back to the time of the dinosaurs and before is that climate change has always been rather gradual a few places where it has been rapid like now, but there is, and I believe this is a fair statement, anybody can research this and come back to me if I'm in error, but it's my understanding, having talked with a lot of scientists in the last decade, that there is no precedent for the rapid rise in CO2 as has occurred between the 20th and the 21st century to date. That is the key the rapidity. And when you have rapid climate change, you have rapid changes in temperature in zones, it means that plants and animals are struggling to keep up with the changes and that humans are beginning to realize we're not having a vicious, horrible storm once every five years or once every three years. We are having horrible, vicious, intense energetic storms throughout every year now. And the toll eventually, how far can we go before all of the governments of the planet are struggling simply to try to cope with the impact of storms? That, to me, is still an unanswered question. But you couple that with already, this is science, we're not talking about speculation, the rise in the average sea level uh, right now in 2014 going forward has already been revised upward. The expectation is that there could be, in a conservative estimate, maybe three to four feet 
of a rise in the average sea level around the world by the end of this century. That's the conservative estimate. Well, Mel, everyone listening, you get at four feet of water above the current Florida beach, and what have you got? You've got huge parts of Florida and other parts of the southeast that will be inundated with water on a regular growing basis, and then what happens with hurricanes and and any kind of a storm like the nor'eastern up in the northeastern part of the United States, your storm surges go in. It's a there's a mathematical formula. For every inch rise in sea level, the storm surge going inland goes in further. There is actual mathematical calculation for that. Four feet higher in the next uh, 85 years, well, the damage is going to be so much worse. And this is why I think at least the value of everybody on the planet trying to face squarely, if we keep contributing not only CO2 but now methane, Methane is melting from the Arctic and the northern uh, climes above Canada faster than anybody had expected by now. And people are not talking about this. Methane release increases the blanket, the so-called blanket around the Earth, that much faster than CO2. Right now, we're talking about 2014 numbers and projections and islands like the Maldives that are already scheduled to go underwater in the foreseeable future and what happens to all those people. Well, give us another decade, 2024. What will it look like in only 10 years? These are facts. This is not politics. This is not some food for uh, people to sit around and argue. These are the facts, and these facts are serious, and the consequences of these facts are on all Earth life. And that's why I feel passionate about trying to learn as much as I can, report the facts to the best of my ability, because we only have this one planet to live on. Absolutely. And the, the the word here when it comes to weather, at least to me, is extreme because we had the coldest winter in many states, but it was also the warmest January in recorded history in Alaska. And we hardly saw that. The news talk about that. And I also, you know this, I returned from Europe the last few days and uh, chemtrails were there everywhere, in France, in Spain. I wonder if there's anything, any relevance to what we're seeing weather-wise with this. And I spoke to a lot of people there who said to me, Mel, I'm not seeing spring or fall. It's just summer or winter. It just goes, goes like this. Anyway, tell us what you found. Yes. This reminds me so much of the first 1996 uh, reports that Art Bell and I were getting at what then was Dreamland that we were doing every weekend and Coast to Coast was just getting started in 95 and Art was having me do sometimes five hour programs. He'd call me up and say, hey, do you want to do uh, a whole show, which then was five hours <laughs> on global climate change? <laughs> so I have, uh, I've really uh, tried to stay focused on the facts in this, and at the same time that we began doing a lot of uh, global climate change reports, Art and I both started receiving in the mail, uh, because there was not as much computer then, a lot of mail and a lot of phone calls about these, what people were calling for the first time, the white 90-degree crossing lines in the sky that people were saying, we've never seen the sky look like this before. They started sending photographs through hard mail, and you were looking at what looked like an ice tray in the sky. Well, in, uh, I think it was about a month period, Art received two or three videotapes that he sent me, 
and they were showing the thick white streams coming from the back of a large silver plane that had an what appeared to be an orange, red-orangish kind of circle on the tail. I tried to find out what this was, this plane, who who would be the uh, manager, who would be the source of this plane. It was not identifiable to Art, to me, and most pilots that I showed the photos to. But the next step that was even eerier were the videotapes. And I remember distinctly that I believe we received three, three different videotapes, three different parts of the United States. And the one that is the most dramatic, it shows the white thick coming out of the silver plane with the uh, red-orange circle on the tail. And then in the wake of whatever the white is that's coming out of the plane, you can clearly see what looks like a silver disc. This is not interpretation. This is what it looked like, a silver disc that is moving in and out in a kind of um, surfing motion in and out of the white, thick material that is coming out of this plane. Well, I tried so hard in 1996 to find any hard uh, physical paper trail, whistleblowers, anyone who could give me hard information beyond the fact that the general public was beginning to notice that the sky was filling with patterns of white lines that no one had ever seen before. Uh, Jim Mars and I, uh, I think it was around that year, we were at a conference in Sedona together, and we were standing out in a parking lot with about a half a dozen. There had to be six or eight of us. It was the perfect Sedona, solid blue sky, not a cloud. Mm -hmm. We are talking before lunch, and all of us, uh, our our attention, because it made sound like an airplane, we look up and here is exactly like what Art and I had received in the videotapes. It's a large silver plane with a red-orange circle on the tail, and out from behind it is coming this solid line of white. And Jim and I and the others said, my God, this looks like what everybody is reporting we went to lunch after watching this plane for some time in the sky do two or three of those trails. We were at lunch only for an hour because we were at a conference and we had to get back. When we came out of the restaurant, the entire sky of Sedona and that was blue an hour before was a gray white. And Jim and I and the others stood there with this sense of eerie wonder. This is not normal. Who's doing this? Why? What is in that plane? What are these strange uh, crosshatch lines doing? Okay, now jump to Art was still doing Coast to Coast and Dreamland, so this has to have been before uh, 2004. It was probably around 2002. Um and we can mark it uh, even closer that it, uh, the discussion I'm going to describe was only about two years before Edward Teller died. He was still actively working on projects for the United States government. He was still actively working with scientists at the University of California, Berkeley. And in the work that I was doing, I had never stopped trying to find facts about these uh, lines and the skies going milky, and uh, I knew all of the reports about the possibility of chemicals and all of that, but I had not been able to prove it. So suddenly, I am sent a paper that had been presented in Italy by the teller and two scientists from the University of California, Berkeley, in the beginning of the 90s, and the whole paper was because of climate change and that the expected average global temperature of the Earth to keep rising for the 21st century to dangerous levels. Uh, is there anything that could uh, deflect that heating and keep the Earth in a moderate temperate range? And this was Edward Teller's proposal. 
presented at this Italian meeting. This happened for real. And it was, in simple, you take certain types of very tiny, almost microscopic pieces of metal, like aluminum, and there were others described. And you take airplanes, and you take the airplanes up in a very scientifically controlled experiment in which one airplane unloads these tiny, tiny fragments of metal at, let's say, 20,000 feet, another plane at 30,000 feet, another plane at 40,000 feet, another wherever, and that you would have this all totally uh, known where, where each plane was geographically at what altitude when this experiment of unleashing tiny metal fragments would go out, and then they were going to measure uh, photon energy and see if there were changes from these metals reflecting back photons uh, away from the Earth. And I got uh, a reference to Edward Teller, his office phone number called and ended up talking with him and recording. I had hoped for radio, and he had had a stroke a few years earlier, and it affected his speech so much. I could understand him, but I knew that I could never use his interview for radio, but I certainly could report about the information that I received firsthand from Edward Teller about the paper that he had presented. He acknowledged it, confirmed it, said that he had hoped that someday this could be tested. I said, Dr. Teller, do you know if in the past, now or in the future, that this government is experimenting with or will experiment with what you laid out in that paper in Italy? And there was a pause, and he said, to my knowledge, it has not been applied, but you need to talk with, and he gave me the names of two scientists at the University of California, Berkeley, that he had worked with. And here's the kicker. My reference was directly from Edward Teller, who had been the head of the Star Wars efforts under the Reagan administration uh, for reasons unknown, uh, the energy that he put into uh, to various projects that were uh, allegedly about us being prepared to deflect incoming things from space, from wherever they came. And I call these two offices. I introduce myself, my name. I am an investigative reporter. I produce science environment uh, it, it, uh, reports for uh, the, uh, at the time it was Premier Radio Networks by then, and, uh, and that I had just done a recorded interview with Edward Teller, and he was referencing me specifically to Dr. and the name, and to follow up each office the secretary had the same exact words as if in the two offices they were reading from a paper. And it was something like, I can tell you that this is the email that you can send your inquiry to for Dr. Blank. Beyond that, I cannot help you. And what happened? Both offices that I sent an email inquiry as a reporter who had talked with Dr. Tell who was being referenced from Dr. Teller to them at UC Berkeley, both emails were bounced back as undeliverable by the email demon. I went back to both secretaries. I explained to them what had happened. Could they please help me uh, personally make a connection with the scientists? Both secretaries independently told me, we're sorry, this is the only information that we are allowed to give out. Now, that kind of a loop, and that's what reporters call it, it's, an, it's a loop designed to keep key figures away from reporters without anyone ever saying, you, reporter, cannot try reaching X. And I've run into those kinds of black hole loops before. And the, the only person, then, whoever talked to me, about the issue of an experiment 
that have been proposed on paper, that's all Linda knows, and talking with Dr. Edward Teller, who said sort of after a long silence that he was not aware of his proposal being applied. I have always wondered, Mel, how does this government continue to keep going forward pretending this is a democratic nation of, by, and for the people, and yet time and time again we are shown over and over that this government acts on its own, independent of oversight on a whole lot of matters, and could what is happening in the skies be related to some independent project that was seeded by an idea by Dr. Teller at an Italy science conference back in the early 1990s. Aluminum causes Alzheimer. Barium causes heart disease. It depletes the body of potassium. Strontium, radioactive and causes cancer. All these things, independent laboratories, have reported that this is what they found in the water and in the soil hours after the skies have been sprayed. And uh, I'm cynical enough now about government actions to wonder this. They may have hard scientific evidence that links any one of those elements that you just listed to a suspicious uh, speculation about impact on health. But the loopholes always are. You hear it all the time. We have no definitive hard proof that there is a medical link or consequence between aluminum and Alzheimer's. I'm just giving an example sure. of what we hear a lot. And it could be that the, the government agencies that go about doing their independent research these days, the only thing they're worried about is being called before a congressional hearing which we know they don't have much teeth anymore either because Congress is bought and sold. But nevertheless, it's embarrassing when agencies and government people have to sit in front of people that they don't respect, i.e. Congress, and uh, are uh, talked to like they are children when they think that they are kings of the world and running everything. They don't like that. So it's possible that if they can always pull out a list and say, this is all we've experimented with at these altitudes on these dates with no consequence to health that is provable. Those are the loopholes within which they act. But if it, it, it would be a noble cause if they're doing this to help the planet. If that's the case, why don't they tell us? Is there a law that, that does not allow them to experiment, quote-unquote experiment, on the people? It's a very excellent question. Several things went through my mind. I think that government agencies, especially the alphabet soup ones uh, that are usually in charge of these kinds of, uh, we'll call them projects, they can use black monies so they don't really have to go to Congress. But there are agencies through whom they do have to work, such as the Department of Defense, that is supposed to have a budget that is open and visible to members of Congress, i.e. the public. And I'm not saying that that is what happens. I'm saying that's the way it's supposed to happen. So it is possible that just to stay completely off of the public radar, stay completely off of the congressional radar, because it makes their lives, lives simpler, that they just go about doing like this and denying or not even commenting. I think government silence is uh, clear now in a lot of areas, such as the boom, the metallic sound, and the trumpet sounds. This is another parallel. Uh, just if I can, I will just segue over to this, because in a way, it may be some kind of a similar project. You've got the strange chemtrails emerging around 1996, and then there is a beginning to the boom phenomena 
the metallic scraping sounds and the strange trumpet-like sounds, it actually also has a beginning on the timeline of about January of 2011. Remember when there were these big headlines that did make CNN and across the United States and all forms of media that on New Year's Eve of 2010, going into January 1, 2011, some 7,500 red-winged blackbirds and grackles fell out of the sky over Beebe, Arkansas. Yes, some people I remember. call it Beebe, and some people call it Beebe. And at, right after that, there were birds that were falling out of the sky going south of Beebe, Arkansas. Uh, millions of fish were dying. They're all around the planet for reasons unknown in January of 2011. You go back. I was doing as many reports as I could, and I was astonished every day at how many reports were coming, whether it was Europe or South America or Central America or North America. It was just all kinds of uh, Earth life that were dying. And then we began getting, oh, oh, and there were the, the loud booms, not firecrackers. People really tried hard to make reporters hear that, that they knew the difference between firecrackers and gigantic booms that were rattling their floors and their walls. Well, that boom, that description of loud wall-rattling, garage-door-rattling booms began also in that first quarter of January 2011. And if you went back, if you went to earthfiles.com, my news website that I have been producing and reporting since 1999, and you uh, type in booms, you will see now I probably have done nearly 100 reports in just the last uh, three years. And this is coming largely from North America. It does seem to have more of a North America, meaning all of Canada, and now almost every state in the United States, as we talk today in 2014. But it definitely had a beginning in certain areas where it was repeating, and I can tell you just a few. The Louisville, Kentucky, Illinois, Indiana, Arkansas, Missouri area, that has been one of the more constant places for the strange booms, some of the uh, trumpets and scraping metallic sounds, the area off of uh, Salem and Boston in Massachusetts is a ring there. You come down into Virginia, Washington, D.C., and Maryland. There's been lots of reports there. Vancouver, the Canadian side and the United States side for reasons who knows, but there's been lots of reports going from Vancouver down into Washington, especially in the state of Washington, then some in Oregon, and when you get to California, all up and down from north to south in California, and then you jump east into Utah. And I would say that there has been intense reports of everything from the booms to the metallic scrapings to even sort of trumpet sounds associated with the appearance of jets in the sky, helicopters in the sky, where booms have occurred uh, sort of between uh, Provo and Salt Lake City for reasons unknown, but we're not talking about one or two. These are the places that I'm talking where there's been hundreds and hundreds of people who have repeatedly heard these strange sounds. Now, there is one very important part of all of this phenomena that everybody should keep in the front of their mind when they hear about this. In 2011, going into January again of 2012, a year later, there were more animal deaths all over the place in January of 2012, again, for reasons unknown. But it was then that for the very first time on my radar, on Whitley Strieber's radar, on Coast to Coast radar, on everybody in the, the media that I know, it was the very first time that we started being sent YouTubes uh, or emails about YouTubes in which there were these odd trumpet sounds 
the most outstanding being in Kiev, Ukraine, that resonates today with the horror show of violence and incursions right now. But in January of 2012 was the first time that I was seeing at YouTube lasting almost 12 minutes. This is a 12-minute uh, videotape. It was taken in a video camera by a woman who worked for a video production house. She had the camera there when she heard outside on the ninth floor of her balcony in uh, Kiev a strange sound like a trumpet. And she walked to the balcony, and she couldn't believe what she was hearing. She went back, got her videotape camera, and stood there for the 12 minutes running that camera on what is probably the single, I think everybody who's ever heard it says, it is the single most haunting sound you've ever heard. Well, that was uh, within uh, what? Within the, by the end of 2012, counterintelligence of some sort had kicked in. And you heard all kinds of criticisms. Oh, there's nothing to Kiev. This was all concocted. There are no trumpets out there. No, no, no. These are kids that are playing on YouTube. No, that's absolutely not true. And I could spend another hour explaining all the people that I've interviewed, the cities, the, the multiple neighbors, all the people that I have talked to who have heard these sounds at the same time. This comes to the point that I wanted uh, to really hammer in, and that is for 2011, going into the first half of 2012, most of the people that I was interviewing firsthand were saying, I heard this, it stopped me in my tracks at noon. I was walking to the car and this trumpet sound filled the air and I had no idea. It seemed like it was coming from above. You talk to another person. Well, there was this strange, it sounded like a, a road grater that was grinding against metal and it filled the air and I think it was coming from below me. And you talk to another person who was delivering newspapers and they say, God, it was 4 o'clock, scared the out of me. Uh, it, this sound filled the air. It was sort of like a trumpet. It was sort of metallic. I didn't know if it was coming from above, below, around me. It just filled the air. Now, I've just given you the three constant different directions and descriptions of so many people. And when I would say, were there people running out of their houses or the offices, or their cars, to hear this loud, metallic trumpet sound filling the air. Did you? Who else is, is, I would think the entire neighborhood, I would think the city would be coming out. And every single person said the same thing. No, no, no nobody, nobody stopped, nobody came out. That was really, really baffling to me. And then in the summer of 2012, and again in 2013 a lot, but for the first time in 2012, police, fire, authorities in uh, five counties in Georgia all at the same moment began getting phone calls, computer messages that uh, there was this loud, huge, and it was not just one, a boom that knocked one garage door off of its track. A police officer had gone home to have lunch. He was uh, describing how the walls and the floors of his house were shaking. Uh, he had hundreds, thousands of witnesses all at the same time in five counties. So... I began putting out uh, the question on Coast to Coast and Earth Files and Dreamland and radio programs and so forth that I was doing saying, is there anybody out there who has any science, any answer about how on one day five counties, can thousands of people can be describing a phenomena that the next day two people in a neighborhood are hearing and describing the same thing, but nobody else on the street has heard anything. How is this possible? Well, 
started uh, last year, so in 2013, in the spring, for the first time, I got the first alleged whistleblower on this phenomena. And the man who got in touch with me said that he was representing a geophysicist who was working at Hill Air Force Base in Utah, that the geophysicist was well-known in his community and by the Department of Defense. That was stated to me exactly that way. And therefore, if his name were publicly known, everybody would know who he was. They couldn't afford that. But that he had been listening to the reports that I had been doing for the two years plus uh, on the boom phenomena, the metallic scraping and the trumpets, Mm -hmm. and that the geophysicist wanted through the intermediary to let me know that the geophysicist at Hill Air Force Base had been working on a related problem since 1998 having to do with measurable changes in the inner and outer core of this planet, and that they knew that infrasound was being emanated from these changes in the Earth's core, and the infrasound, which is not normally uh, audible to the human ear, but definitely is to dogs, uh, cats, elephants, and so forth, but that that infrasound was going through the crust, uh, through the mantle, through the crust, up through the atmosphere, colliding with the ionosphere, and being bounced back, and that in those deflections, the infrasound was becoming audible at the Earth's surface, sometimes only in a very tiny area. That's what led me to uh, Adriana Gleason, Ph.D., PhD geophysicist at Stanford University, where I got my graduate work and my master's degree. And I called her up, and I it was very straightforward. Here is what I have been trying to understand. Uh, these are what are reported. I have had this whistleblower, alleged uh, whistleblower, uh, allegedly working at Hill Air Force Base, who says this is his hypothesis about what it could be explaining the booms and the metallic scrapings and the trumpets. And to my surprise, uh, Dr. Gleason did not dismiss any of this out of hand. She had, uh, had a paper published in June of 2013, a little less than a year ago, and it was about her measurements of what was happening in the core of this Earth in which they now are pretty much convinced that what they used to think or had data that we had a sphere turning fast inside of liquid nickel and iron at the center of the core, that it has changed shape. And that the shape that it has changed from is no longer a sphere, but is lopsided. They don't know why, but they think that the lopsidedness now of what is happening in the core of this Earth is causing all kinds of changes that they can measure by infrasound through the mantle. That was really refreshing to be able to report that, which I did. And then I started getting even more reinforcement about infrasound being a key. But I'll tell you one other aspect. It happens in my life way too much. You get a whistleblower. They put you on a path to learn information that is highly relevant to a new earth mystery. I am charging ahead. I get a really credible, respectable geophysicist at Stanford University to do a solid interview is not dismissing. We're getting out good, solid information about what could happen between the Earth's core and the crust. Uh, Infrasound uh, could come down and from the uh, ionosphere and come down to a house that's physically uh, relatable. That it could come down to two houses and not go any further. Suddenly, I have at least uh, some physics backing up this strange phenomena. And what happens? The the Hill Air Force Base geophysicist and the intermediary no mo- no more emails. Phone numbers don't work, nothing. I'm cut off. And I thought, well, here, I couldn't have done a more 
credible program if I were working for 60 minutes. And so why are they suddenly disappearing? My guess, that the government likes to test the public through some of us. The government knows that these are impossibly difficult subjects, and that is why they are not on the 6 o'clock news. They're too hard. Uh, It takes too much time and and too much money to try to keep hanging in there on these difficult, seemingly unsolvable issues, and that maybe they, they sort of leak real information. And somebody like me, who is sort of tenacious and stubborn about trying to get the facts, I keep going until I can get some sort of, a, I hope, a credible answer to share with the public. And that in doing so, the credibility of the information reached a, a big high with that report that I did. I still have people writing to me about it to this day, including scientists. And I just did a report with another scientist about new research in infrasound. I'm going to keep hanging in there on that. Well, maybe when the credibility of the report rises to a certain level above the radar, that then makes the government alphabet soups nervous because they don't want mass attention to whatever they're doing or whatever they think is coming. And they expect that they can sort of uh, drop these crumbs and that very few people will pay attention and, and they will do their tests on the few that pay attention. And I'm saying, Mel, that I think there is something solid about this issue of the inner core infrasound, ionosphere, the phenomena of sounds that no one has ever heard happening so regularly before, and the question that the geophysicists left with me before they disappeared, and this is exactly what they said, our greatest concern is whether or not this is leading to increased seismic and volcanic activity on this planet and our greatest concern in North America is Yellowstone Crater. And as we know, Yellowstone has been very active recently, but you said something very interesting about the ears and the infrasound, because some of the information yeah. I've received, there's a common denominator here, Linda, birds, dolphins, and whales with bloody ears, perforated eardrums. Yes. Oh, that is so good of you, Mel, to bring that up. It is, in a way, at one level, uh, I've thought of it as a sidebar, but I actually have come to think, if these booms, metallic sounds, and the trumpets are being heard by human ears because infrasound is reaching a level of being audible, then what is that infrasound doing in water, underwater, to animals that are sophisticated and depend upon magnetic fields and sounds to guide them all the time? And if there is something that is emanating infrasound that would interfere and even break the structures inside of their ears, this could explain it could explain why there have been increasing dolphin uh, die-offs by beaching and sea, uh, uh, even seals, but uh, the, the big whales. There have been so many beachings in the last year or two. What if it's all related to something earth uh, core? Uh, and if we were just told the truth by our governments, maybe something more uh, could be done or we would we would be uh, paying attention to this. And, and right now, it's as if we're left hanging in a ph- phenomenal mystery with all of these facets, from the dolphins and the whales with the broken eardrums to the humans that are being waked up at 2 o'clock in the morning or startled at uh, 4 o'clock on a newspaper route or walking to their car at noon. There is no hour 
that that's another. There is no time in which this uh, phenomena has not occurred. It's around the clock on any given geographical area. And this, to me, is becoming. I think I am feeling very nervous about what all this could be adding up to. You know, that leads me to the next question, the Earth's magnetic field, because as you know, birds and, and, and fish and dolphins and, and whales, they use the magnetic field for direction. They have magnetite. So I wonder if this is changing the way things are, and that's why they become beached and died and the the birds fall from the sky. And also, I've heard that the Earth's magnetic field is dissipating, is is going down, which means that radiation from the sun must be entering the planet. Well, there's a lot in that question, and all of us need to learn a whole lot more about our Earth's magnetic field. The uh, mag- uh, It's called the magnetosphere up above the ionosphere. Those two really protect this planet. And then you have the solar wind that comes in from the Earth that hits the magnetosphere, and that's why we have auroras. And all of it is complex. And the issue of poles. I have done, I don't know, several dozen stories over the last 15 years on the magnetic fields of the Earth and what you hear, what you'll see cartoons in newspapers. Oh, I'm told that the Earth's going to flip tomorrow. The poles are going to flip. And that, unfortunately, is what goes out into the public mind, and everybody thinks that somehow the Earth is going to roll over and the North Pole will be down in the South and the South Pole (laughs) will be up and the whole planet will have flipped, literally. But that's not the way it works. Uh, When you go back through the geological analysis of soil, rocks, and so forth, as people who study geomagnetic fields do, you will find that there have been hundreds of pole shifts over the four and a half billion year long age of this planet. And the pole shifts are when the the negative charge and the positive charge of the poles change. So if the North Pole is right now in the Arctic region and it has been moving toward Siberia, now why has the North Pole, the actual magnetic pole uh, place, why has it been moving toward Siberia? Well, I did an interview about that with a man who has, uh, that's what he does in uh, a university down in, I think it was, uh, oh, it was, right now I think it was down in some place like Louisville or somewhere. He was in the southeast. And the why that was relevant is, remember that story about the magnetic field lines on the compasses had changed so much at an airport in Florida that they had to go out and completely repaint yes, everything? Yes, Okay. That's what started me to do that story. And I got into a fascinating discussion with this physicist. The motion of the magnetic field lines at that particular airport in Florida, to him, that really wasn't a surprise. And he gave all the reasons why when you get out X thousands of miles from the North Pole, that there will be what is called magnetic field drift, and that this is not the only time that airports or places that are very, very sensitive to uh, magnetic fields being important to airplanes being able to fly and land, that there will be magnetic drift thousands of miles from the North Pole. What he did tell me of consequence was that the reason that the magnetic North Field has been moving in the Arctic for the last 50, 60 years toward Siberia, they now think that they have got a pretty good handle on this, that there has been an uprising of magma coming out of the mantle up toward the crust in Siberia, and that the volume of the of the lava that is coming up in the Siberia region is gigantic. It's raising the ground. 
uh, what do magnetic fields follow? They follow moving liquid iron. That's what magma is under the crust. So his hypothesis, and it's not just his, it's the general geophysical community now, is that the north magnetic uh, pole has been moving. They think that's the reason why it has been moving. When you go down off the coast of South Africa, you now get to a region that they think is interacting with what would be the a new position for the South Pole or a new position if the North Pole and the South Pole change their charge, that this region off the south coast of South Africa could be a new pole. All of this adds up to that the Earth is in a state of flux. It always is in a state of flux. The magnetic fields will hang in there for a long period of time with the poles, but they think this is on average. Scientists think that the magnetic poles of the planet have reversed about every 250,000 years. Now, they, if that's true, we're way overdue. And that's why everybody that's in the geophysical community says that maybe in the next 100 years, 500 years, or 1,000 years, the poles will reverse on this planet. And Mel, they do not really know what will happen to Earth's life during that pole reversal. Remember, it's not the Earth rotating like a ball. It's fields. The magnetic fields will change at what we know as the North Pole and the South Pole. They will go to the opposite. Now, it, it has been speculated upon because no living scientist has ever seen this. There is really no description in modern literature what happens. There is speculation that, in fact, birds would fall out of the sky en masse, that marine creatures would have a hard time because suddenly all the navigation rules would be changed overnight and that there would have to be some sort of a transition. Well, as far as I know, sitting here today on May 1st, 2014, there is no imminent upcoming pole change, but that there isn't a scientist alive who is in geophysics who would tell you, no, it won't ever change again. It will change again, and nobody really knows what's going to happen in that immediate build-up to the pole reversal and what happens at the pole reversal and how long does it take Earth life to readjust once the poles have changed. Those are really, truly legitimate and serious Earth mysteries. And we have to take our one and only intermission, but let me just say one more thing about chemtrails. One concern that I have, Linda, is how people have accepted what I call the new sky. We see Disney cartoons, we see movies, we see commercials with these lines in the sky, and the new generation that's being born the last 20 years and growing up now, that's the sky that they know. And if you're familiar, and I know you are familiar with William Bramley and his book, The Guts of Eden, oh, yeah. he wrote the... Yeah. He talks about how during the black uh, bubonic, um, bubonic, uh, bubonic plague, men were seen with hoods and brooms, robbing the brooms on, on, on people's doors. And shortly after, the disease would spread, which we are told killed millions. Could chemtrails, since we're so prepared and accepting of this new sky, be the 21st century delivery mechanism for a future plague? It's an interesting question, but instead of brooms, substitute rods and the rods, because Bill and I have talked about this a great yes. deal, the idea of the, uh, of the figure of death coming with a scythe, C-Y-T-H-E, that was a curved metal blade, and extraterrestrials, that was Bill's hypothesis, that the, the figures that were going around Europe, they had rods, 
they had some sort of metallic technology in their capes and cloaks, and that it was as if these caped, cloaked figures were deliberately spreading disease to reduce the population of Europe. And that's why I say, could chemtrails be the 21st century delivery mechanism since we are accepting this new sky? But we'll take more of your response when we come back. Also, when we return, and, and you'll, you'll tell us how to get a hold of your website and so on. But when we come back, you've been working once again on a 1998 interview that you did with a CIA agent who claimed yes. to have had ET contacts only in three years from 57 to 1960, he exposed. He was exposed to a live being, exposed to seven discs, saw black and white film with a six-finger humanoid. He had been at the CIA library, saw files concerning Roswell, the retrieval of at least three kinds of discs, and so much more. All of this when we come back. How can people learn more about you, your website, earthfiles.com, and so on? Go to www.earthfiles.com, and you can always email me at earthfiles at earthfiles.com. Always riveting to listen to Linda Moulton, how when she's speaking, I'm on the edge of my seat waiting for the next word to come out of her mouth. So I'm so glad to have Linda Moulton, how back here in Veritas. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy.
This is Linda Moulton Howe, and you're listening to Veritas. 